Here's what I want to do. I want to preach uh, first. The introductory part of the sermon is going to be something that I talk about often, which is what Episcopalians understand to be authoritative in their common life as a community, a church, how we understand what the, 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 those sources of authority for us are, and then to see if any of the things that I've described in the, in the three-legged stool, as it's called, uh, manifest themselves in the reading from uh, the book of Exodus, where we have the story of the Passover, and in Matthew's gospel, which is uh, a gospel today about clean dealings and relationships with one another in the church, and perhaps we can extend that to understand and mean uh, institutional life. So how do we handle the issue of corrupt motives, and how do we talk about things like transparency and honesty and openness and things of that sort? Episcopalians believe that there are three sources of authority upon which our faith rests. The first one is the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. The second is the tradition with a capital T. And the third is our human reason and experience. Now, a lot of times... Uh, people describe this in books or in catechisms or introduction to the Episcopal Church by drawing a, uh, what, what, what is the three-sided triangle that all sides are equal? Equal, <coughs> equal lateral triangle. You can tell that I struggled in that aspect of my education. So they would put the Bible at the point and the tradition over here and reason and experience over here. But I think it's far easier to uh, write it and probably more consistent with our history as a church to do scripture, tradition, reason on a continuum, right? Not necessarily in that chronological order because we believe as Episcopalians that the church is prior to the scriptures, The church is prior to the scriptures. The church wrote the Bible. The Bible didn't fall out of my Old Testament professor, Joseph Hunt, who was Pope John XXIII's Old Testament advisor before he became an Episcopalian. He was a Benedictine monk. He used to stand in class and throw the Bible up in the air and it would come down on his hands and he would say, what's this? And God said, it's the Bible. <laughs> I wrote it. So that's not quite how the Bible came to us. I absolutely believe in my heart uh, that the Bible is inspired by God, that it is central to our self-understanding, that it is important to be a student of the Bible and to, under and to know how important it is. But in one sense, the Bible is intimately connected to the second part of the stool, which is the tradition with a capital T. Now, I'm going to speak about the tradition, and I'm going to, I hope you understand the distinction between tradition and traditionalism. There is a difference. You know, we live in a culture that is completely detached from any traditions except the ones we make up. 
You know, what color does the ruffle need to be under the Christmas tree every year? Right? Mason Williams, I've told you this before, the, the writer for the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour years ago, that dates me, was talking on the show one time about tradition. But he was really talking about something else. He said, I was over at my mother's house for dinner and she was going to cook a leg of lamb. And so I was in the kitchen and I noticed that they had the roast and the bone, you know, that comes out of a, of a leg of lamb. And she cut the sinew right where the bone joins the roast, where the joint is. And she turned the bone around this way towards the roast and then picked the roast up and put it in the pan. And he said, Mom, why do you, why do, you do that? And she said, well... Uh, my mother told me that when you do a leg of lamb, that's how you make it, you cook it. So he happened to be at his sister's house a while later, and she was cooking a leg of lamb, and she did the same thing. And she said, why do you do that? And she said, mom always told me that's what I had to do when I prepared a leg of lamb. And so, as luck would have it, some months later, he was at his grandmother's house, and she was cooking a leg of lamb, and he went into the kitchen, and she cut the thing and turned it and put it in the pan. And he said, Grandma, why do you do that? And she said, well, you know, Mason, when your grandfather and I were first married, we didn't have a lot of money, and we only had a pan this big to fit the lamb. <laughs> That's traditionalism. Not the tradition with a capital T. Now here's the struggle in this matter. Throughout the history of Christianity, we have been in a conversation with one another about what are the core beliefs that are important and that all people who believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that we share now in the promises of eternal life, what is it that's important What's the core? And there's some people who would like a long list of what the core is, and there's some people who would prefer a shorter list about what is essential. In the early Christian church, they had lots of debates about something called, in Greek, adiaphora, matters indifferent. So that would mean in some cases that local communities did things somewhat differently. And other you know, one community maybe emphasized something and another emphasized something else. And some of this is our matters indifferent. The struggles in the Episcopal Church over the last 25 years have had a lot to do with a big debate about what is adiaphora and what is not adiaphora. Right? So some believe that um, uh, ordaining women uh, is not to be permitted and it is definitely not adiaphora. And some would say, no, it's not true. And we, we see when we ordain women 
and advance of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit and work in our common life together, for example. So the tradition is important, and it's important for us to say to ourselves, we may need to recover those certain kinds of traditions or maybe to understand the importance of tradition generally. 1981, a famous book in the academic world was written by a philosopher named Alistair McIntyre called After Virtue. And in this book, he says, there is absolutely no moral consensus in this, in, certainly in Western society. It doesn't exist. And the reason it doesn't exist is that people have no concept of the traditions that produce the original understanding of what it meant to lead a moral life. He uses the example of Captain Cook with his ships on the Hawaiian Islands in the 18th century, the end of the 18th century. And he's in there with his crews, and they notice that the Polynesian people's practices are considerably different than what they knew in England in the 18th century. So Captain Cook believes that it might be important and instructive to have a meeting with King Kamehameha. So he and his officers go and meet with King Kamehameha and his people. And he said, Captain Cook said, we have some questions we want to ask you, Your Majesty. Uh, we're interested in the differences between what our practices and customs are and what uh, the Polynesian people's practices and customs are. For example, we would like to know why the men do not eat with the women. And King Kamehameha looks at him and says, because it is taboo. So Captain Cook says, what is taboo? And in so many words, King Kamehameha says, well, you know, I don't know exactly what taboo is. I just know that it's taboo. <laughs> and what his point is, is that uh, the Polynesian people are so detached now from their tradition, they have no idea what undergirds the taboo rules. They don't know anymore. They just know that it's taboo. They have not engaged their tradition. And, McIntyre says, uh, that lack of knowledge now leaves the Hawaiian people open to the blandishments of New England Calvinist missionaries which was true. So it might be important to have some idea about where these traditions come from and what the difference is between tradition and traditionalism. And thoughtful Christians have been engaged in this undertaking for a long time, maybe from the jump. The tradition is important, and it's a container for how we understand ourselves but any tradition worth its salt has something to do with the way in which it expresses 
resiliency. And it can meet the demands and the opportunities that are in front of Christian people in every age. So the tradition is a friend. It isn't somehow an enemy. And we need maybe to uh, disabuse people of that in, in our own time. When I was in school, in high school, in one of my English literature classes, one of the books we had to read was The Elizabethan World Picture by E.M. Tilliard. And it was a book about the thought world of the Elizabethan period. So that would be of interest to people who read Shakespeare. It would be also of interest to Episcopalians and Anglican Christians because one of the sort of formative people in that tradition in the 1500s, the 16th century, was a man named Richard Hooker. And in fact, Richard Hooker is the one who gave us scripture, tradition, reason. Some people in this day and age, particularly people on the more conservative side of things in our tradition, believe that to include experience with reason is inappropriate and too contemporary. That reason is reason, you know, the processes of thinking. If when Hooker used it, what he meant, E.M. Tilliard's Elizabethan World, he meant reason and experience are together. It's like what we're learning about the science of the brain and the nervous system, that thinking and feeling are simultaneous. They occur together. We don't feel and then think. We don't think and then feel. We do it at the same time. So we have kind of what some describe as a liquid nervous system. That's the way, that's the way it works. I mean, after all, you do have to think about something, right? that you experience in order to think about it and understand what it might mean. So all those things are important, and I believe that they're part of the core for Anglicans, the the three-legged stool, how we understand uh, where our faith rests. So today we have the story uh, in Exodus about the Passover. And I don't know about you, but when I read the story of the Passover in Exodus, it sounds pretty well-formed to me, right? In Anglo-Catholic circles years ago, we would have called it Passover Ritual Notes. Here's how you do. This is what you have to do. You have to sit this way. Here's how you roast the animal. This is what you do with it. When you take the blood, this is where you put it. This is how you do this is the thing, you've got to eat it fast, it's, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da. So maybe it gives us an idea that uh, the Passover's regulations in the biblical text came a little bit after the people of Israel had celebrated Pass- Passover for a while. After all, Passover in the reading is pretty hectic and pretty harried, and Aaron and Moses are sort of making this up on, off the, you know, for the seat of their pants. I didn't know whether they wear pants then, whatever it was. <laughs> and so they, so they were thinking, how do we understand this? Remember, the people of Israel celebrated Passover 41 times before they got to the promised land. 
So they were practicing. Now, why is that important for Christian people? It's because the tradition that develops around the Passover, which is a definitive thing for us as well as for Jews, comes through two things. Settled community and pilgrimage. Wandering. The people of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And they celebrated Passover all along. And then they get to the promised land. So if you want to file this and keep it on ice, I would, most Old Testament scholars would tell you that the uh, story that we just read in Exodus probably dates from the Babylonian captivity in about 580 BCE. Right? So Moses is back in 1250 or somewhere in, the, in that neck of the woods. But it's after the people were carried off, or many, from Jerusalem to Babylon. And they had to write their stories down to maintain their tradition so that their children understood what it was they'd been through and what the defining aspects of this grand narrative were that we read about. In the reading from Matthew's Gospel... We have a situation where Jesus is uh, advising the disciples. He does two things. First of all, uh, in the course of this, he gives the disciples the power of the keys. Power of the keys is the power uh, of the church to bind and loose sins. Right? In some parts of the, some of the gospels, Peter receives the keys. In some places, the apostles receive the keys. And in this one, everybody gets the keys. And of course, that means you've got to learn to practice forgiveness in your life. And it's very difficult. It's sometimes harder on you if you don't forgive than if you do. But the power of forgiveness has also healing and transformative power in in the one forgiven. That's the breathless feeling that Paul had when he understood that he was saved not for anything he did, but by God's love and by God's grace. What a wonderful thing. So we have the binding and the loosing, and then we have uh, practical hints for church life if someone sins what does that mean well a lot you know parish life uh, 68 AD has something to do with the way in which people in their communities gossip keep secrets don't uh, aren't forthcoming aren't transparent in their behavior tell tales gossip that's something that uh, is present everywhere isn't it And sometimes it doesn't appear that we've learned much or we haven't taken seriously what it says there to do, you know, being honest and open with one another. Now, when I use that term, I need to tell you this. Have you ever run into anybody that you've met you don't know very well and all of a sudden they've told you 14 of their most intimate secrets? Right? Why are you telling me this? You know, don't. In fact, there's a lot of time. I do not wish to hear this. You know, 
the priest I began my ministry with in Tucson, Arizona, said, well, so-and-so came, and they were cursed with perfect recall. (laughs) So sometimes we have to have rules for how we engage one another. If you're in institutional circumstances or family life or something like this, and uh, people are telling tales. I used to get so worried, you know, somebody would come in and say, well, there are a number of people who are very upset about this. I say now, who are they? What are their names? You tell me their names. I want to know who they are. Don't just suggest this to me. Or if somebody says it about somebody else, who told you that? Why didn't you ask them? We don't do that, do we? So this is in contemporary terms. You and I live in the therapeutic culture. We've lived in the therapeutic culture for at least 50, maybe 60 years. In 1967, a, a, a therapist named Philip Reif wrote a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic, where he described the therapeutic culture as a culture that believes in a manipulatable sense of well-being. That's not the only definition by any, by any measure. But the other thing to say is, is that it sounds like we're criticizing uh, the whole idea of a therapeutic culture or its importance. Well, we're in it. You can sort of, it's like crying over spilled milk. And you know, therapy is from a Greek word that means uh, to heal. And it also means to tend a garden. It has other meanings besides, but it's very important to understand that. So that we understand its limits and its capacity for transformation. So it's important to be able to see how do I interact. You know, one of the great exponents of doing it in a way that we would consider uh, not appropriate for our own time, but it's still done in these communities, was St. Benedict, the Benedictines. In his rule, he writes about how the monks are to treat one another and what they're to do. And these are some of the things that they do. And this uh, rule, in some way, is connected to the gospel and how Jesus understands the way in which people deal with one another. So we're, in this reading, to be both uh, instruments of the healing power of God through forgiveness, and we're also to be people who uh, are clean in our dealings and become sensible Jesus didn't say for no reason we must be wise as serpents and harmless as doves and how we understand interacting with one another and why it's so important. So this week, give thanks for the opportunity to be an instrument of God's grace and love in the world, a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love in the world. Give thanks to God for uh, his unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness for you. And give thanks for the, for the tradition that can animate us and strengthen us and give us some sense of understanding about the nature of reality. Amen.